0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: If there's anything good about Trump, uh, he makes it impossible to ignore the crisis we face.
2: Hello, welcome to The Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein, this is my show, and this is a special edition of the show. Uh, We have not one, not two, but three fantastic guests today, All, all sitting at once. You're not gonna have to listen to them one after the other, it's not like a nine hour episode. Uh, but but this is a lot of fun. We have EJ Dion, Thomas Mann, and Norm Ornstein. So you may know these folks from 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 different pursuits. So Mann and Ornstein have been a writing team and an analytical team for a long time. They are scholars of, of Congress. They know more about the U.S. Congress than, than basically anybody alive. Um, they have. Been absolute fixtures in Washington, helping many, many generations of journalists understand it. And they've written in the past couple of years some amazing books. Um, in particular, uh, they had a great book called It's Even Worse Than It Looks, uh, where they came out with the analysis, which I think has proven more and more true as the years have gone on. This was a pre Trump analysis. The Republican Party has morphed into something different, that it's not just that Democrats have moved left and Republicans have moved right, but that what was breaking governance in Washington was that the Republican Party had become a party contemptuous of governance in some of its basic forms uh, and of people who govern and of governing experience. Uh, They got a lot of pushback for that, and then the Republican Party went and proved them right in every particular. So they have partnered with E.J. Dion. Um, You probably know E.J. from his work at The Washington Post where he's a columnist, from his work on television. He's uh, an incredibly sharp political mind and analyst, author of many great books himself, including Why Americans Hate Politics and Where the Right Went Wrong. And they've all come together, like a supergroup, on a book now called One Nation After Trump. And this is a pretty interesting book. What they're trying to do here is situate Donald Trump both in terms of the trends that created him, so particularly the Republican Party's evolution and Congress's evolution over the last, say, 30, 40 years, and also try to think about what comes after him. It's a book that has a lot about how uh, a sort of counter-mobilization can happen, what an effective resistance would look like, what a Democratic agenda that is able to counter Trump, or frankly, any agenda able to counter Trump might look like. This book covers a lot of ground. It does so very swiftly. These three folks are very, very, very smart. They have an almost inexhaustible quantity of political knowledge between them, as you will hear. But I really enjoyed having this conversation with them. Something I do want to note, their, their book begins, uh, I said this in the interview, but a but really good point, which is that The American political system was not supposed to create someone like Donald Trump. It's not supposed to lead to a president like Donald Trump. There were a lot of checks in place to keep that from happening. So we really begin the interview there in, in how did this happen structurally. And from there, we go into the Republican Party, the media, the electorate, all kinds of things. It's a very wide ranging interview. They're a lot of fun to talk to. They have a lot of fun talking to each other, as you will hear. And I hope you have a lot of fun listening to me. Talk to them. All right, without further ado, here is E.J. Dion, Thomas Mann, and Norm Ornstein. Boy, there are a lot of you. There are two. I don't do this. I usually do one-on-one interviews. There are too many of you. I feel I feel a little intimidated. But we've known each other for so long. We that have wouldn't... known each other a long time. All right, so I am here with Thomas Mann and E.J. Dion and Norm Ornstein, not necessarily in that order, uh, who are the authors of One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. Um, I'm at least one of those things. And I'm excited you all are here. Uh, You are great scholars of American politics, and this is a time that could use a little bit more perspective. I loved the first sentence of the book. The first sentence of the book was one of my favorite sentences, which was, American democracy was never supposed to give the nation a president like Donald
1: Trump. EJ, why? Because American democracy was supposed to have a process of what you might call sifting and careful deliberation. Uh, We talk all the time about the founders creating a system that was going to give us at least plausible leaders. And we've never had a leader like this in our entire history. You see it just this week where there's a crisis in North Korea, this healthcare bill, I think terrible healthcare bill is about to come up, uh for a vote. There are new developments on the Russia scandal. And what does Donald Trump do? Uh, he picks a fight with the NFL, a racial and other major league sports, a racially charged fight. Um, he's somebody who prefers tearing the country apart to governing. Uh, he has no interest in policy. He he has appointed a government, many, many of whose members are so deeply hostile to the idea of government itself that they don't know how to respect norms. Thus, this week's uh, scandal about uh, Tom Price, uh, the HHS secretary, taking all these charter flights. So we just were not supposed to produce a president like this, and we did. And so we wrote the book first, in the first half, to talk about how in the world did we manage to do this. And we lay heavy stress, by the way, on uh, America being a non-majoritarian democracy, which is not really a democracy, Electoral College gerrymandering the nature of the Senate. Um, but then we also talk about the factors that led to Trump's election. And then we have a long section. I mean, the book is short. It's compact. It's easy to read. So I'm not long, but we have and pleasurable.
2: It, it does the laundry. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's and uh, it it's makes a, slices
1: and dices. It makes
2: a
3: great holiday gift. <laughs> right. Don't forget.
1: Um, but we have a significant section on uh, what we need to do here, both to learn the lessons of the uh, about solving the problems Trump exploited, but also to solve the problems he's going to leave behind. The reason I liked that that line, uh, Norm, was that I think We have
2: had trouble talking about Trump as a structural phenomenon. I think that there's a lot about him that is unique, a lot about him that is individual, of course. But it is very hard to imagine him rising in a different period of, say, primaries, in a different period of party internal strength, in a different period of media – and one of the the ways I think about Trump and the ways I think about our future is that there is a lot in his rise that speaks to basic guardrails of American democracy falling, ways in which we had checks on which kinds of people could get close to the presidency. Those checks are now uh, diminished. So I- I'd like to hear you on that for a minute, not not Trump himself, but what were the conditions for, for this election?
3: Oh, you're absolutely right. And I would just add one little uh, uh, note here, which is, Uh, Not only do we have trouble with all of this, but we're finding with so many of our friends in the press and elsewhere, they're having trouble not considering him as a normal president. The efforts to normalize Trump and to suggest that he's now pivoting to become a president, that's another part of this. But, you know, going back to your question to, to E.J., Alexander Hamilton wrote very eloquently about how we were putting in all of these guardrails and those guardrails, which many of which dropped a long time ago, electors as actual people who would sift out uh, the potential candidates and make sure we didn't end up with a demagogue or somebody uh, who had no real values. But now we have all of these others, and it is absolutely the case that the way in which we select presidential nominees has been taken away from any of those people who might put some limits on what's going on. And of course, the fact is that Donald Trump, just to pick one example, was endorsed by less than a handful of all the Republicans in the House and Senate. These were people who, presumably close enough to some of uh, the others uh, who've been involved in politics, looked out there and said, "This is not acceptable." But the way the process works, the nature of tribal media, the things that have now intervened uh, to uh, basically take away the judgment and the role of people who might be able to have sifted some of this. Wait, out wait, wait, I don't, I don't want
2: you to yada 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 that because that's that. I'm old enough to remember 2012. I'm that old. And there was the whole talk (laughs) about the invisible primary, right? (laughs) There was the whole talk about the invisible primary. There was the dominant um, theory of primaries, was the party decides. I mean, this is not some yesteryear period when we thought that party officials had a lot of control over primaries. So when you say that this stuff didn't matter,
3: why didn't it matter? And, you know, remember that uh, Andrew Prokop, uh, one of Vox's great people, uh, did an interview with me uh, after the election. Because I had written a piece uh, about why this time would be different, and many of our colleagues in political science who had crafted the invisible primary notion and that the Republican Party inevitably would come back to their choice jumped all over that. But it is precisely because these guardrails are gone, but also because of the rise of populism in the aftermath of 2008 and the failures, the abject failures of the elites in Republican Party circles in Congress, the young guns uh, who promised all of these Tea Party people that they would blow up Obama's presidency and failed. And then Trump came in and said, nobody's gonna take any crap from me.
1: I just want to say a couple of things. One is one of the lines we have in the book is one of my favorite quotations from John F. Kennedy, who said, he who foolishly rides to power on the back of the tiger ends up inside and that's what happened to the republican establishment they used uh all of these radical themes when trump was a birther they didn't really condemn him john boehner famously so "Well, people can think what they want Mitt romney and,
2: stood up on a stage and welcomed his endorsement uh, right and
1: in abject saying imagine this he, he acted so excited exactly right but i also think just as a matter of politics um nothing, almost all the bad things that happened in the 2016 election or what I would see as bad things happened because there was the assumption that Donald Trump won't win. So that in the primary, you had a kind of tragedy of the commons where Republican candidates, his opponents thought one of two things, either I want to be the last man standing against Trump because I can beat him or in Ted Cruz's case, he's going to drop out. And then I want to inherit his supporters. So nobody went after him. And then in the general election, Um, You had Comey making that decision. It's pretty clear he thought Hillary was going to win and didn't want to be responsible by covering up the thing he should never have made public before the election. President Obama didn't speak out on what we knew about Russia because he thought Hillary was going to win and didn't want to look like he was interfering in the election. So Trump complains all the time. Nobody thought I could win. That was the best thing that happened to him in that election. Do you, do you buy that, Tom? Because I,
2: I look back on some of this stuff, and I know there's this argument particularly around the primaries nobody attacked him. I don't remember Trump uh, moving through the world with insufficient attacks. Like, I don't remember people not knowing. He, he was always so clear, actually, about what was wrong with him. I mean, it was him himself. Like, he always showed who he was. Is it really that the system didn't take him seriously? Or that even when it did take him seriously, the system did not have
4: a defense mechanism that was in any way effective. I think the latter is uh, is the case in many respects. And it really takes us back to the structural issues and problems that uh, you're talking about. Part of it is the formal process of, of party nomination and then informal mechanisms that build up alongside it to try to make it work. But part of it really is the nature of our political parties today, and what they are, what they stand for, where where power and influence resides, uh, whether they are governing parties or not, whether what they aspire to as parties, and and it takes us back to something we talked about uh, five years ago about the asymmetry uh, between the parties and the the fact is, uh, the radicalization of the Republican Party over a long period of time produced a kind of anti-system behavior. Uh, I think weakened all kinds of informal safety guards on the system. You could see it in the actions of elected Republican officials. You could hear it in the rhetoric that was normalized during this period of time. You can see it in the, in the effort of the Republican Party to use distrust in government as a means of gaining power. And that set the stage for, I think, the public accepting
3: abnormal behavior as normal and attractive uh, And that's a big part of the problem. You know, one of the interesting things here, there were 17 Republican candidates. And I thought from early on that one of the outsiders would prevail, that the party decides rule would fail this time. But it could easily have been a Ben Carson, an African-American conservative celebrated neurosurgeon, a Carly Fiorina, a woman, a business person, a Ted Cruz. Why did Trump emerge? He emerged from this pack when he went after the immigration issue in the grossest way. And he talked about the Muslim ban and the wall and uh, that put him to the right of Cruz who couldn't believe it on immigration. But, you know, you look now at his gross attacks uh, in Alabama and you see how he's using race as a divisive element and immigration in many ways becomes, for a lot of his voters, a a surrogate for the race issue as well. That goes back to the structural
4: issue, the fact that over this long period of time, the Republican Party has become a much whiter party and the minorities are on the Democratic side. And you've gone through a difficult period of adjustment economically and culturally, and that there, there has been a market out there for explicit racial and xenophobic appeals i think trump uh, was very smart in in detecting a market could i just on. say these People things can be true
1: at the same time by the way which is we make a very strong structural argument about the republican party we have a lot in the book as you know about the media and the we the social media is playing a very different role now as well all that's true but there were very specific things that happened in this campaign You know, Donald Trump lost the Iowa caucuses and had he lost in New Hampshire, we wouldn't be seeing this thing. And had Chris Christie not completely devastated uh, Marco Rubio in that debate, I mean, it was embarrassing. Um, I think Trump shows no loyalty. He owes Chris Christie big time for the demolition job um, he did on Marco Rubio. So that I think we need to be able to see both the structural factors and the contingent factors. And again, I think it's really important that we always note that the guy lost the popular vote by 2.9 million and that the I'm gonna, election I'm hung come back. on 77,000 votes in three states. So there was a kind of casino aspect of it. And the guy who owned a lot of casinos knew how to get the number to come up.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: Tom, you say he was smart, that he, he understood this. The thing that Trump has always struck me as in his relationship to the Republican Party base is authentic. Donald Trump is authentically a member of the Republican base. He's a guy who in another world would be commenting on Breitbart or yelling at Fox News on his television. He's a 70-year-old white man with reasonably retrograde racial politics. And it seems to me the thing he did, which is a lesson in American politics that I don't think will be soon forgotten, is recognize that the core of what the Republican Party now was, was white identity politics. I don't I don't mean that in its most negative ways, right? I mean, you can have a lot—there are a lot of different kinds of identity politics out there. But he understood that the one of the core unifying things was not— Low taxes on rich people or getting rid of health care for poor people or having a neoconservative foreign policy, not the things that the Republican Party in Washington had made the core of its agenda, but a sort of tribalistic white identity politics that America should be for you, its government should be for you, the true American, not for all these other people, not for these immigrants, not for these refugees, not for these uh, minorities who aren't working that hard. And that was not, I think, a smart thing he did. I think it's an authentic thing to him. I think it is how he feels. And the reason he has such a strong partnership and relationship with some of the Republican base is it's authentic in a way that for a Marco Rubio or a Paul Ryan, it isn't. Uh
4: seems to me one can be authentic and cagey in sensing the time and the opportunities. I agree with you completely that that part of Donald Trump is authentic. Norm mentioned the speech in Alabama, and we hear it every week, if not uh, every day. So, So yes, that's who the Republican Party—not every Republican—but that's where the core of the party is. And he sensed that he didn't have to do dog whistles; he could pull out the bullhorn and uh, and scream about it, and it would help him, not hurt him. I'm I'm gonna. I'm gonna.
2: gonna, One thing I want to move here because I think this will be useful for this. It's important to keep saying, as, as you did, E.J., he didn't just not win the popular vote, but for most of the primaries, he wasn't winning most Republicans. And I think we have a bit of trouble when we talk about the 2016 election being clear about what are we trying to explain. Are we trying to explain how Trump got from 45 percent to 46.1 percent of the popular vote? Or are we trying to explain how he got to 40 So he was close enough for these factors like Comey and the media and whatever else to to push him over. And that is a story of how he consolidated the Republican Party vote. And, And that to me is the most interesting thing here. We know that a lot of Republicans didn't like Donald Trump, didn't think he was qualified, he wasn't their kind of candidate. Even if he had enough to win in a very crowded primary, he never had a majority of the Republican Party strongly on his side. But when it came down to it, He had as much or a little bit more support from Republicans than Mitt Romney did, even if it was reluctant. And E.J., I'm curious to hear that part of it. Why was Trump able to consolidate the Republican vote? And is the implication that anybody who wins a Republican Party primary automatically begins
1: spitting distance from the presidency now? I just want one point on authentic. I bridle whenever I hear Donald Trump calls called authentic. I'm reminded of that great Hollywood line. What you need is sincerity. And if you can fake that, you can do anything. I agree that there's a history on the race issue going back to discrimination with his dad and going and his back to the Central Park Five and to the Central Park Five. So I agree that's there. But this guy has held almost every position other than race on almost every issue. And I just think we have to bear that in mind. So I think there's still a lot of what he's doing is contrived. Uh, but on your point, um, I'm really glad you underscored that because we forget that he got well over 88, uh, 80% of the Republican vote. I believe it got 90, the, most 90%. Most 90, yeah. I think it was 88 yeah. and the um when you talk to the Clinton people why they lost, they have a very compact analysis. They ran – their turnout among African-Americans was a little lower than they expected. Their defeat among the white working class was a little higher than they expected. But also that they did not do as well among uh the college educated whites. And he won college educated white men by with about fifty-nine percent. And that's because in the middle of this faux populism, uh, he his if you looked at his tax plan, This was a classic Republican tax plan. If you look at the tax plan we're about to see from Capitol Hill, he promised the Republican constituencies, the affluent Republican constituencies, what they wanted. And a lot of those voters responded to him just like they responded to any other Republican. I think the second thing that we can't discount is there is just a lot of uh, dislike and hatred of the Clintons, including Hillary uh, in the Republican base. My favorite exit poll finding is if you took the 18% of the electorate who had an unfavorable view of both Clinton and Trump, Trump carried them 47 30, the rest scattered among the third party people so that, um, his, it, it is no accident that Trump is to this day attacking Hillary Clinton because in some part of him. He understands that a reaction against her, was the best thing he had going among these Republican constituencies, plus the tax cut and the deregulation, which, by the way, he's doing at an astonishing speed and we're not paying enough attention
3: to. You know, back in 2012, when Tom and I wrote It's Even Worse Than It Looks, everybody was talking about polarization. And we insisted on calling it tribalism. Because there's a real difference. You can be polarized ideologically, but still see people on the other side as having legitimacy. This was turning, it started in Washington, into viewing the other side as the enemy. And we now know from a lot of studies, Alan Abramowitz and others, that negative partisanship is a dominant feature. People hate the other side so much that they'll vote against them even before they vote for anybody on their own. That explains a, a solid core of Republican support for Trump. But look at the elite level as well. When the Access Hollywood tape came out, we had uh, Jason Chaffetz famously say, how can I look my 15-year-old daughter in the eye if I support this guy? And then a week and a half later, he was supporting him. And he was saying, of course, we can't let Hillary Clinton be president. Paul Ryan did a conference call with his Republican colleagues in the House saying, I can no longer give any backing to this awful person. And then a week later was out campaigning with him. And what we saw, and of course, then you've got Reince Priebus, who was the author of the famous autopsy uh, for the Republican Party, saying we've got to reach out and do something on immigration, and then taking the most anti-immigration nativist and becoming his chief of staff. For the elites, in large part, it was if this guy gets elected because he has no policies that matter to him, he'll sign anything we pass. And so we want him to be president, even if we don't like him. And those signals that went out from those elite figures reinforced, I think, the negative uh, partisanship as well. And it does get back to your point. Any Republican now, is going to start with a base of 45% at least and be within striking distance of the White House, and especially given the biases in the system.
2: So I want to say two things on this. Uh, One is that this, to me, we've now gotten to what is the weakness in American democracy. You have, let's say, particularly in the Republican Party, a party that has lost control of its primary process, cannot in any way decide who wins its primary process. But if whoever does is now like this close to the presidency. And you can't say this on the podcast, but I'm holding my fingers up in an internationally recognized this close symbol. And <laughs> because visual uh, gesticulation is always good. Imagine on, on, on an audio emoji. only, right? <laughs> um, so one, that, that feels to me, if you're stepping back from this, to be the scary side. Uh, I don't think really either party has that much control over its primaries. Republicans clearly have none. But this is now an entry point for demagogues when it used to be a gateway that demagogues couldn't get through because even if you're somebody who could be demagogic and effective in popular appeal, you weren't going to be able to appeal to the party uh, machinery, the party legislators, et cetera, that way. So that feels to me like one, one thing that is worth looking at here. But the other that, that you just bring up, Norm, and it goes back to the work you, you and Tom have been doing on the Republican Party for a long time. In the book, you write that Trump represents an extreme acceleration of a process that was long underway. And you've had a Republican Party that, for all of its discomfort with Trump, has ultimately been lockstep behind him, has been there on his priorities, has been there to protect him, has been there to stand by him when he needed them to stand by him, has at a certain point begun coming out and saying, you know what? We're just, as a general rule, no longer going to talk about the crazy things he says in public, because if we did, then we would never stop. This is the same party that was all moral values and, you know, and trying to impeach Bill Clinton in the 90s. So Tom, that is my question here. What is – what has Trump revealed, uh, not about the electorate, not about himself, but about the Republican Party itself as an institution? The people who we look at and they still look to us like normal politicians in normal suits and normal politician
4: stuff. Ah, uh, you've nailed it. That uh, these are the big, big problems of American politics. I was thinking back to the founders and the concerns about demagogues and the need for smaller Republican virtue and the leaders who emerge because the system otherwise couldn't constrain or tolerate. But also the ch- the checks and balances that if some destructive person managed to sneak through the screen that they were there to stand up to it. But now we've seen with a unified Republican government that this Republican Party, which basically abandoned governing and looking for remedies to real people's problems and and found a way of politicking that was with elites and interest groups ideological, but with the broader public, it was denying the legitimacy of the other side. It was Manichean. It was, they were evil. Uh, They weren't real Americans. Um, And Bannon fits so well into this and gave, you know, gave Trump a more substantive base for identifying all of this. But Republicans have been heading in that direction for decades. Norm and I have watched this party and worked with Republicans 20 years ago, 25 years ago. They're mostly gone. There are a handful of them in elective office. And those who left tell us, you're right. It's not a serious party anymore. And our political system really depends upon having two plausible uh, governing parties, center can left, I, center right.
1: I, one piece of data really underscores the point you made, Ezra. In October, we did a poll, Brookings and, and P-R-R-I, where we asked uh, everybody this question. You know, that, uh, We asked, uh, can an elected official who commits an immoral act in their personal life still behave ethically and fulfill their duties in public and professional life. Among white evangelicals in 2011, only 30% said an elected official who's immoral in these ways can fulfill their duties. In October before the election, 72%. They had utterly shifted. That's an amazing...
2: And so this question never mentions Donald Trump, correct?
1: No, no, it's just the general idea. And it went from 30%... To seventy-two percent in now, five years. In in five years, and so you probably told, in one year. <laughs> uh, just, right? Yeah, so I suspect that's right. And so you talk about partisan negative partisanship trumping everything, including a series of ethical commitments, at least in theory, rooted in religious faith.
2: Okay, but so EJ, I want to talk to you about this. So you you and I um, both write a, a large number of columns about American politics. This is research I'm familiar with. That poll number, it's amazing, and it. Sort of doesn't surprise me, and I feel like when I look at what I actually know on this, it's staring into the abyss. Like I, like I could tumble in and never come back out. Because don't do I that, Ezra. We'd miss you. Because <laughs> I think everything we know about how people formulate political opinions is that they are basically rationalizing the place they already want to be, and that parties will swing completely on important questions based on whether or not they have power. I mean, we, we are watching right now, and the two of you watch, the what Republicans have done with the process by which they've considered their health care bills after the complaints they made about the process by which the Affordable Care Act was passed, it is breathtaking. I mean, it is a level of bullshit and lying that I've never seen before in American politics. I mean, you you I'm sure you had this too— During Obamacare, for months and years after Obamacare, all I heard was the thing was jammed down the public's throat. There weren't enough hearings. There was no regular order. They did reconciliation at the end. And now the Republican Party— Cornhusker
3: kickback. (laughs) Cornhusker kickback.
2: The Republican Party is doing everything. They accuse the Democrats of doing a thousand times worse. And they're being able to rationalize that. So when you look at a poll like that, when you look at processes like the ones we're seeing— it makes me feel that there is no solid ground in politics. There, there are not places where people actually stand. There's only where they stand right now. And so I'm sitting here playing this mugs game of trying to cover what everybody's saying about the issues, and it's going to
1: flip as soon as it's useful for them to flip it. Uh, no, it is. it is extremely disturbing. And I don't think for most of our lifetimes, we have seen anything quite this bad. There used to be at least some sense of guilt, some sense of responsibility, where, you know, if you looked at the Clinton health care bill, John Chafee and Bob Dole felt an obligation to put up an alternative uh, that was pretty substantial. In fact, it was rather like Obamacare. Although they eventually, to be it, fair, to, to
2: maybe nothing's changing, they eventually, they, they Dole pulled pulled eventually back. voted against his own alternative right. or pulled it back.
1: Yeah. No. So, and that's where all three of us have argued the roots of this. Ah, uh, the roots of this go deep. but you're you're right. And as sometimes I try to sort of locate this, how far back does this go? Um, you know, we sometimes I locate it all the way back to the civil rights years, where where you had really the first backlash against the media when the media were portraying what was happening in the South, the demonstrators being peaceful, demonstrators being beaten. And that's when you for, first had the attack on mainstream media as a neutral arbiter of fact. Then you had the Nixon years, where again you had the same attack on uh, so-called liberal media, so that we have been steadily chipping away and now just tearing down the idea that there are any sort of neutral um, facts and numbers and ideas that we all broadly share. And then we can argue about real things, like you can actually argue is block granting health care to the states instead of Obamacare a good idea. I think it's a terrible idea, but we could have a real argument about it. But they have not even permitted the process, as you say, of normal debate, normal fact finding uh, on this where you would have months. I mean, Obamacare got hurt because they took way too long to pass it. It was out there forever. Um, And you so I, I I don't despair because I think there are people pushing back. One of the our book is actually in the end a hopeful book because we see a number of signs of antibodies reacting to the Trump jolt, and I do think you're seeing in the mainstream media some reaction against false equivalents are you
2: and the need to norm, talk about facts. Are you seeing antibodies against Trump norm in the Republican party? Because no. that feels to me like where it's most important.
3: We will get to the uh, uplifting part, but before we get no, there- No, I,
2: yes. I run this podcast. Yes. We're, not getting, we're
3: not gonna get to the uplifting okay. part. Uh, I'm unconvinced I'm, by your uplifting you know, part. You know, I would- We mention, will persuade you before yes, the end of this <laughs> podcast. I would mention three people who to me are real villains in this process. One that Tom and I especially have written about for many, many years, Newt Gingrich, who began the process of defining deviancy down in terms of what Congress did, used the ethics process as a political weapon, uh, changed the rhetoric, uh, basically blew up the process of bipartisan cooperation. Denny Hastert, who followed him, who took it to yet another level, and then Uh, really showcased here should be Mitch McConnell. And if you look at what's happening in the Senate now, going back, what McConnell did from the final two years of George W. Bush's administration using the filibuster in a way that it hadn't been used before, Ramping that up through the Obama years, the way he used it with Merrick Garland, and now blowing up every aspect of the process, including before this iteration of a health care bill, the last disastrous one, the first one that they came up with, where. There was not a single hearing or much involvement at all by anybody who knew anything about health care, nothing from the finance committee, nothing from the health committee, and done with a small group of old white men sitting in a room who put together something awful and then another group of old white men putting together something even worse. And of course, you look at that health bill again, this is the first time ever, I feel confident in saying ever that every stakeholder in the process is opposed to a bill that will get, if they push it to a vote on the floor, at least 48 votes in the Senate. It is astonishing that this could happen, and it is a destruction of a process, and I'm not sure when we get out of it. There are forces pushing on the other side, but they are in the media and in, uh, among conservative and Republican policy intellectuals, a tiny handful of members in the Senate None in the House. Let me ask you about McConnell. Hold hold on, I
2: want to jump on this because McConnell to me is... (sighs) Yes. (laughs) I try to cover people in American politics. Like they're trying to understand the way they're the hero of their story. And I have a lot of trouble figuring out McConnell. So in 2014, before Republicans take back the Senate, he gives a speech um, that is literally called Restoring the Senate. I'm just going to read an excerpt of that speech to you, because I I keep coming back to it. I I, I keep coming back to it. He writes, when Democrats couldn't convince any of us that the Affordable Care Act is worth supporting as written, they decided to do it on their own and pass it on a party-line vote. Now we're seeing the result. Chaos as laws visited on our country isn't just deeply tragic, it was entirely predictable. It will always be the case if you approach legislation without regard for the views of the other side, Without some meaningful buy-in, you guarantee a food fight. You guarantee instability and strife. It may very well have been the case that on Obamacare, the will of the country was not to pass a bill at all. That's what I, I Mitch McConnell, I would have concluded if Republicans couldn't get a single Democrat vote for legislation of this magnitude. I'd have thought maybe this isn't such a great idea. This is 2014. This is his speech about how he will run the Senate if he takes back control of the Senate. The thing that is, I mean, just as a journalist, the thing that I think about when I read this is if I didn't actually cover this speech, but I might have, right? It's a totally reasonable thing to cover. And if I had covered it, I would have ended up lying to my audience, right? I would have told them this is what the plausible incoming Senate majority leader thinks. If you're going to the polls in November, you may want to think about this. And I would have just lied to them because Mitch McConnell, I don't know how to describe did he not believe a word of it? Did he? I I don't I cannot figure out how to <laughs> reconcile um
4: maybe i'm just very naive it it could be pure cynicism being instrumental uh but you never know uh motivated reasoning affects elites and leaders as well and they that's come beyond motivated to believe reasoning. of course it is uh of course like it i is. agree but, on motivated yeah. reasoning but that's but, like that's something different listen i I have not heard a a statement by Leader McConnell uh, on anything relating to the other party or policy that had any real truth content to it. There's no... Truth content (laughs) is quite a (laughs) How's that? That's like fake news. Uh, uh, Like processed cheese food product. It (laughs) is so depressing, Ezra, to to listen to the senate uh, to the congress and to hear republican members get up and with their talking points and say things that are just untrue that that have no bearing on reality and that are so cynical relative to what they had said 2 years or 3 years earlier it's it's a it's the most dysfunctional political party that I've seen in my life. I'm going to throw it,
2: this to you in a second EJ because this is what I want to ask you. I think that we look at this period in American politics, we just being the country, we being the political press and we think god this what is happening here with Donald Trump is completely unique and aberrant and nuts. And and it is. But there are definitely days where I wonder if the more consequential thing that is unusual in our politics right now is actually what's happening with the Republican leadership in the House and in the Senate, what they're willing to do, what they're willing to accept, the processes are willing to run, because the House and the Senate are supposed to be the sort of central checks and power centers in American politics. And the truth is, as crazy as Donald Trump's rhetorical approach is, as crazy as his management of the White House is— most of what is actually happening is happening in Congress. And it is there that they have with a much more normal aesthetic process, right? They speak more normally. They, they, they appear on television more normally. They don't tweet crazy things. But what they are doing and trying to get done is in some ways much more abnormal and much more consequential. I mean, if Donald Trump starts a nuclear war, all this is for naught. But aside from that, What we're looking at with Republicans in Congress is something that I think reads as more normal to the press, and it's actually not normal at all.
1: I agree with both halves of that statement, and I think they're true at the same time. Just on Mitch McConnell— Uh, This whole conversation reminded me of Alec uh, McGillis's great little book on Mitch McConnell. Called The Cynic. Called The Cynic. And I think, you know, McConnell is, you know, all the critical things that Norm said are are right. There's also a tragic quality there because McConnell traces the decline of the Republican Party in his own career because he started out as a pro-civil rights, much more moderate Republican and adjusted himself to the party as it was developing into this very different kind of party than the one he wanted to champion when, or appeared to when he started uh, in politics. We, on the one hand, and we we are very clear on this in the book. On the one hand, Trump has pushed things to a logical extreme that were already in train, as you've noted. Norman Tom in their book, I and my book, Why the Right Went Wrong, sort of talked about this trend in the Republican Party. Uh, to, you know, you're tempted to say it's policy nihilism, but it's actually not nihilism. It's a very narrow agenda that, if you actually poll the specific proposals, are really unpopular. The country doesn't long for tax cuts for the rich. One of the heartening things, I still want to give you hope, Ezra, is that this whole Obamacare fight has actually shifted public opinion in favor of Obamacare. So something good is happening out there out of this fight. But the country doesn't want to repeal Obamacare. They believed Donald Trump uh, when he said he wanted to make it better. So what you have is the very process you are describing in the Republican Congress. And then Donald Trump has just taken it in certain areas to an extreme even beyond where they are, whether it's on refugees, whether it's on the abuse of power, whether it's on kleptocracy and the total disregard for norms. But you're absolutely right. And we trace it in the book that this has been happening for a long time. And you cannot look at Donald Trump in isolation from these long term trends.
5: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or find it wherever you listen.
3: Let me even look a little bit uh, broad, more broadly at the Republican Congress, because a part of our system was that an independent Congress was going to be a check on an autocratic or out-of-control president. So uh, E.J. mentioned earlier Tom Price and all of these uh, flights, the kleptocracy in the administration, the president, his family, his cabinet members, his advisors, how many hearings in the House and Senate on this? zero. Okay. How many would
2: there have been if it was Hillary Clinton's health secretary?
3: (laughs) um, I I don't know if we could count that high. You look at Russia, and this is just astonishing to me, that, you know, a party that built itself on anti-communism, now defending Russia's involvement in our election, nothing done on... Uh, Russian attempts, which continue to interfere with and distort election outcomes in states. Not a hearing, not uh, an effort. All of that uh, really contributes to this. And even for a second to go back to the health debate, you know, I often say that when Obamacare was first in its gestation period, Eric Cantor, then the number two Republican leader in the House, said, our alternative to Obamacare is weeks away. 400 weeks later, they started to work on one. The sense, and this was driven by McConnell and by Cantor and Ryan and McCarthy, all we have to do is unite to oppose everything, and we don't have to lift a finger, even in the majority, to come up with alternatives, because our base will love it, and the tribal media which is a major part of this, will love it. And the funders will love it. And we have to, I think what's happened here, there are Republicans in the House and Senate, mostly in the Senate, many of them, who privately are really uneasy about a lot of this, are appalled by a lot of it, with a different kind of leadership, might move in a different direction. They are intimidated by the media out there that will go after them if they deviate from the cause. And Look at what's happened just in the last week or two. The Koch brothers basically telling Republicans, we got a $360 million war chest here for the next election, which we will open up if you repeal Obamacare and pass the tax cuts for us. Extortion is a part of this process. It's all so dysfunctional that you, you it's hard to know where to start. Oh, but listen, Norm, look at
4: Senator Cory Gardner. I mean, he's... He's a problem solver. The no labels gave uh, him a special award and endorsed him over Mark Udall. Republican
2: from, Republican (laughs) senator from Colorado. Colorado, And
4: now in charge of uh, raising money for the Republican uh, senatorial candidate.
1: And supporting the health care bill. And supporting the health care bill. One point on your sort of broad trend. We have had a Republican Party pretty much since Reagan, that has made its living attacking government. So you have people who want to serve in the government attacking the basic institutions that they want to serve in. And I think this goes to the Tom Price matter and a lot of others. When you don't have a lot of respect for government as an institution, you are unlikely to respect or defer to norms and rules about government and you can't come together to solve problems if you say up front we don't really believe government can solve this problem that's the difference even though they were cynical about it in their own way um you know John Chafee and Bob Dole accepted the idea that you couldn't get healthcare to everyone without having some significant role on the part of government and now when you say government really isn't a legitimate institution we can't talk about government doing anything we can't compromise because the whole premise is that we don't want government to act. We just want to cut taxes. So I want to talk about... It wasn't just Chafee
3: and Dole, though. It was Grassley and Hatch who signed on to that. It's people who are still in the Senate who now have totally reversed themselves. So I want to talk a little bit here now about the Democratic
2: Party. Because what, what we're saying is that, in many ways, the worst things that liberals said about the Republican Party were true. And yet... The Republican Party controls the White House, the Senate, the House, most state legislatures, most governorships, the Supreme Court. I mean, the Democratic Party is at a low ebb for power, despite seeming to be a more popular institution nationally. And so I want to run through a couple stats, some of which are in your book and some of which are not. But since 2000, 40 percent of presidential elections, 40 percent have seen Democrats win the popular vote and lose in the Electoral College. So. 40 percent. That's a lot more than we've seen at any other sort of five election period in American life. The GOP holds a majority in the Senate, a 52-seat majority, despite having gotten only 45 percent of the votes. Democrats got 55 percent but did not win a majority in the Senate. Democrats seem to run, depending on the estimates you look at, four to six percentage points behind their popular vote share in the House. So it's pretty widely believed that Democrats would have to win the House vote by about— you know, again, depending on estimates, but the one that I believe is about plus six in order to take back the House. The Democratic Party is operating in American politics right now from a pretty severe handicap where we talk a lot about persuasion. We talk uh, almost all discussions we have about American politics, about 2016, about Donald Trump, about all of it, are about what is a more popular message, what is persuasion, how do you get people to your side? And yet it doesn't appear that what the Republican Party is doing Is winning through persuasion. Um, It appears that what the Republican Party is doing is winning through an increasing um, efficiency in its geographic distribution. I mean, there's other things that are not mere efficiency, right? There's there's, um, redistricting, there's voter ID laws in places like Wisconsin. But at at the broadest level, the Democrats seem to me to have a, a bad and getting worse problem where just given the rules of how American politics is constructed, they have to win by larger and larger margins to get any kind of majority, whereas the Republican Party can win by smaller and smaller margins and, and get the majority.
1: And we—oh, we, go ahead, Tom. Because well, we lay really—I'm so glad yeah, you raised it,
4: that because we lay very heavy stress on—
1: It's, a, it's a
4: huge problem. Uh, David Wasserman has done some of the nicest— uh, uh, statistical analysis on, on this that, that shows uh, in both the House and the Senate about a 4% uh, partisan advantage, which is happening primarily because of the geographical distribution of uh, of partisans around the country. Democrats clustering in big urban areas and lots of votes being wasted. And it has a huge impact. It puts Democrats far behind. Part of our optimism, Ezra, is uh, because we identify this anti-majoritarianism, but realize the the roots to changing it are—the uh, uh, hurdles to changing it are really large. But you know what? One thing I learned in studying elections and British elections, which is swing— Electoral swing is proportional to prior party strength. What that means is when, when the tide is moving nationally, it tends to be in the in the party disadvantaged. It 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 hits their safe safer seats two, sometimes three times the the average swing. It's not uniform swing. So we still have the capacity if the if the public is angry and mobile it's a midterm election There's
2: i want to reset this because i don't actually want to have a conversation here about whether or not democrats can win the house in 2018 oh, okay. what i what i the question i want to ask here is we appear to me to be hurtling in a towards a system that is a lot less small d democratic and, in a way that I, I does threaten agree. its legitimacy
1: I, this is the point uh th- this is the central point that we really try to hammer in this book Uh, A lot of people say, well, it's because Democrats are concentrated in big cities and they should move to places like North Dakota. There is a solution for you. This is a structural problem with the system that discriminates systematically against people who live in metropolitan areas. In a country that is increasingly metropolitan, for all the years 1824 to 1996, there were three elections in which the popular vote was out of line with the Electoral College. Two of those were weird elections, 1824 with four candidates, and 1876 where no one, there was so much fraud, no one really knows what the popular vote actually was. Only the Grover Cleveland reelect, which he lost. Uh, was out of line. Whereas, as you said, 40 percent of the elections since 2000. Why is that? There has been a massive movement uh, toward uh, metropolitan areas in the country because that's where economic growth is. But the system has not adjusted in any way. By 2050, 70% of Americans will live in 15 states, which means that 70% of Americans will be represented by 30 senators. The Electoral College is affected by that. People say it's this concentration of Democrats. The Brennan Center shows that the Republicans get at least 16 or 17 extra seats out of their gerrymander, which means About two-thirds of their majority is accounted for by partisan gerrymanders. We cannot go on with this non-majoritarian democracy very long without the whole system coming under real question. Now, there's some of this you can't change. The Constitution makes it really hard to change the Senate, almost impossible. But you can do something about gerrymandering. You can do something about voter suppression, which is another factor here. Uh, you can do something about campaign money, which also tilts the system in a non-majoritarian direction. And we really need a new uh, reform era across this whole uh, area, which we try to encourage in the book.
2: But you can't do anything about any of that because the party that will continue to hold quite a bit of power benefits from it.
3: And, you know, if you uh, we had this, of course, we've had these sort of uh, memes for a very long time. Uh, back when Horace Busby, the former uh, LBJ uh, uh, aide, wrote about the Republican lock on the Electoral College. And then we've had these books about the emerging Democratic majority. Uh, majorities may occur, but they're going to mean less and less. When the 2000 election happened, the reaction of most Americans, I think, was, Well, yeah, he didn't win the popular vote, but those are the rules. If you, you know, win more games in a tennis match, but you lose the sets, you still lose. There was this sense that, well, this is how it works and that's fine. By the time we get to the third election in this cycle— when somebody loses the popular vote and wins the presidency. More and more Americans are simply going to see it as illegitimate. And if Republicans are able to keep power, even if Democrats inexorably are going to gain in the demographics to become a more solid majority, they are going to use the techniques of voter suppression uh, and the campaign finance system to maintain an unnatural edge in our politics. And that uh, is frightening in a whole host of ways because it really, it, you know, we've got these norms that we've talked about in uh, inside Congress, the regular order and all of that. The fundamental norm that a vote means something could disappear entirely if we're not careful. And that's true at the state level as well as it is at the national level.
2: And, and that seems to me to be a, a genuine challenge for our political stability. So, I mean, we, we keep looking at something like Trump as a... Um, as, as an aberration. But if we get into a, a space where the Republican Party is becoming smaller and smaller, but is winning elections in this sort of strange electoral college twist pretty routinely, at some point, you're going to have anger emergent in the Democratic Party, right? You're going to have a feeling that this is actually not a legitimate way to have politics, that, you know, we don't actually have a democratic system. And that is the kind of thing in politics that is combustible. And and, and that's what worries me a little bit about it, Tom, that, there we we are all watching this trend happen, but we don't really have any way to approach it in part because so I don't know if you all have read um Democracy for Realists, the, oh, sure. the I read it in manuscripts. <laughs> so I think it's an excellent book and And one of the things they say about it is that one of the tilts in American politics is that you're only allowed to solve problems with the political system by re-emphasizing pieces of the political system, that, that the problems in democracy can only be solved with more American democracy. And that questioning how the system works, the way it is framed in American politics is entirely sore loserdom, right? It's entirely power grab. It's entirely, it is it is a subject that is more or less kept sacrosanct from um, criticism. Uh, and And that doesn't feel to me like it's going to be a sustainable equilibrium. If we're going to go into destruction, as E.J. says, and as you all write in your book, where,
4: say, in the Senate, 30%
2: of the population gets 70 of 100 senators.
4: It just uh, underscores the seriousness of the problems facing American democracy now. They're, they're big time. And whenever you get to this point, you typically authors say, well, we'll reform this and this and this, and you realize while you're writing it that, of course, the powers in place now will prevent those from happening, and it goes on. But part of the argument of our book is, is uh, yes, the longer-term problem is real, and maybe bigger than anything else. But Trump appeared and he jolted uh, the system. And there are a lot of people scared uh, and mobilized. There, There are a lot of people sort of frightened by what's going on. You don't need to educate 150 million voters to do this. You need some millions of activists to begin in part at lower levels of uh, of government. Part of the reason Democrats are in such bad shape in state and local government is they held the White House for eight years. They were in pretty good shape when George W. Bush was in the White House. But I, I think the the fear, uh, the embarrassment of what this party allowed to happen and, and how it put our nation at at risk and diminished us in the world and in our very lives has the potential of producing uh, something. We we had an event uh, uh, last night, uh, yesterday afternoon, at Politics and Prose, and it was just electric. Mind you, it's a selective audience. Uh, uh, but it's it's really I've never seen anything like this now, and and you're betting on the structure of uh, our problems, and we're we're betting on the fact that there still is some agency for action here. That in the end, uh, if people realize what's going on, and you're smart
1: and play the political system, it. It will make a difference. You know, I had a great professor uh, who was talking about how we can talk ourselves into despair, whether intellectual or political. And he said, yeah, that's like saying— Oh, good. Well, I, I should have
2: him on the podcast. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. Uh, the, uh, it's a Joni Mitchell line. This is a ta- song about disappointment, one of my favorite themes. But no, this professor wrote— Uh, That why make things difficult when with just a little more effort, you can make them impossible. (laughs) And I think that, you know, very concretely, um, there are a group of states who formed a compact through their state legislatures where the states agree that they will cast their electoral votes for the winner of the popular votes. And if you got enough states to join that compact, you would, without changing the Constitution, effectively move us to a popular vote system. You have a case before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, from Wisconsin about gerrymandering that has at least a shot Ah, uh, prevailing. It depends on Justice Kennedy, but there are more and more measures that show how outrageous these gerrymanders really are, and that at some point they really do violate the principle of one person, one vote. So there's a shot there. I don't see any big shot at changing the Senate, but if we could begin uh, to change, the, have a real movement to change the Electoral College, have a real movement to get rid of. Uh, gerrymandering, have a real movement for a campaign finance system that privileges small contributions. Bernie showed you can raise a lot of money uh, through small donors. There are paths available to us to push back against these anti-majoritarian trends. We got an uphill fight uh, also on voting rights. We've got an uphill fight. There's no question about it, but it's not an unwinnable fight.
3: You know, Woody Allen once said, uh, we are at a crossroads. Uh, If we take one path, it leads to total despair. If we take the other path, it leads to abject darkness. (laughs) Choose carefully. Uh, And uh, we're trying to get away from that and create a third path. But make no mistake about it, it's going to be a difficult thing. One of the things I worry about that people aren't talking about very much is we're not that far away from a constitutional convention called by the states but that's a constitutional convention that will be dominated by the Sean Hannity's and Laura Ingram's of the world unless there is an even more massive mobilization. The kinds of constitutional changes we might like won't necessarily be uh, on the uh, uh, agenda. Having Take said, out necessarily, I that's think, right. period. Having, having said that, we are seeing in many states – Referendums move forward, for example, and that I think have a much greater chance of success at changing the redistricting process. We've seen a referendum in Seattle that created these patriot dollars where you can actually inject small contributions into the political system by giving everybody vouchers that they can use for whatever candidates they want for $25 a piece. There are some positive signs out there, but this is an uphill struggle. And if we don't have this mobilization continue and even be accentuated, uh, then we're going to hit a, a period of so very I'll, rough times. I'll tell you
2: I'm a little bit surprised to see the three of you place so much weight on popular mobilization in this book, which is, uh, there is no doubt that having an, uh, a very high level popular mobilization in American life would would be a good thing, right? Um, certainly if it is pointed in the right direction. <laughs> But um, that, I think, is the answer people come up with every time that they're out of power. And they get a bit of it usually, right? The Republican Party got the Tea Party. The Democratic Party now has resistance. And and these things are associated with the parties but not not obviously identical to them, in some cases even a little bit hostile to them. But there just does not seem to me, when we're talking about these large-scale, long-term structural questions, to be – good examples of these things continuing for that period of time. And I, I think after Barack Obama, there was this hope that the Obama forces would come in and revolutionize politics. And of course, they did not. I think there's this hope that that Bernie Sanders would lead a political revolution. That, that, that did not happen, at least not as of yet. I, one of my, um, this is somewhere where I sort of agree with Andrew Sullivan, who has written that. You know, the nice thing about living in an advanced democracy is that you're supposed to be able to not pay that much attention to politics. Um, I'm interested in politics. I I, I like paying attention to it. But but a lot of people don't. And I think in some ways a measure of a system is that – You're supposed to be able to just be a voter and then also have your life and have things go reasonably okay. And this may not be one of those periods, but while it is extremely easy for me to imagine a mobilization that leads to Democrats retaking the House in 2018 and Donald Trump, who again only won after losing the popular vote and getting 77,000 crucial votes, I mean, it's very easy to imagine Donald Trump losing in 2020. It is not easy for me to imagine some Trump triggered mobilization that continues after Donald Trump and makes these kinds of structural changes in American life. That seems to me to be hoping for something that history suggests is not in the offing.
1: I think history actually tells us that you're right. These mobilization periods are unusual, but they tend to arise in response to a crisis And then we mobilized the abolitionist movement. Unfortunately, that whole fight led to a civil war, although we did eventually get rid of slavery. The The populist and progressive eras, our populist era, which was a reaction to the Gilded Age and really led to a long period of reform through the New Deal, the mobilization of the labor movement in the 1930s. And a lot of people told Martin Luther King that what he wanted to do through the Civil Rights Movement and A. Philip Randolph and all those folks this isn't going to work. And it did. So we do have experiences in our history when the country looks at an injustice and says this has to be righted or a dysfunction and says this has to be corrected where we do act. And if there's anything good about Trump, uh, he makes it impossible to ignore the crisis we face. We could have gone through a slow period where these problems sort of get worse and worse, but very slowly. I think Trump has just drawn a big, bright line here and told us this is not a period to stay home. Because I agree with you. I like, you know, I like to go into my kids' baseball and soccer games. I like all kinds of things that have nothing to do with politics. I love that my dear Boston Red Sox are on the verge of winning the, the American League East. But- this is a moment for politics, and we just don't have a choice.
2: I think one of the interesting questions there, because because I, I I actually put mobilizations that are on, on a very specific social issue or around a specific group in a different category. I think we, by the way, are seeing an extended mobilization around that, around Black Lives Matter. I think that you could very well see big immigration rights mobilizations coming in in, in the next sort of decade. But in terms of broad-based political coalition mobilization, because that's what you're actually talking about here. Maybe the the only thing that I think is really an example there is a progressive era. But in terms of broad-based political coalitions, what seems to me to happen repeatedly is that they burn out after they get the person out of office. That it's very hard to mobilize in politics around structural reforms and for extended periods of time. I think, you know, people criticize the way the Obama um, group used their their folks but i'm not exactly sure if they'd taken the opposite path it would have looked differently and i think something right now that you're seeing in the republican party is a surprise that you know donald trump had the big rallies he had the big crowds like we're all those people now and instead you have the resistance emergent and so i I, again i want to push you a little bit on this question. How do you keep a mobilization from burning out as soon as it has gotten the offensive character, the offensive politician, the offensive majority out of power? Because then there tends to be this, okay, we won, and then people get disappointed when the wind doesn't bring that much, and that disappointment leads to disempowerment and demobilization. You know, you're,
3: you're, you're right, uh, certainly, that uh, there's far too much focus on Trump per se now and not on these larger pathologies, particularly in the Republican Party. And here I would say it's not just a mass mobilization. Uh, If I look at Republicans in state legislatures... They're more batshit crazy than Republicans in Congress. We're moving in the wrong direction in terms of an elite taking back a party, which will inevitably be a very conservative party, but turning it into a problem-solving party. And here we need a, a mobilization of elites as well. We're seeing it in a heartening way with people like Jennifer Rubin and Evan McMullen and Bill Kristol and others, some of whom we never would have imagined getting involved here precious few politicians inside the Republican Party. There's another danger though I think on the Democratic Party side. The kinds of reforms in the presidential nominating process that Bernie Sanders and his acolytes want can easily create the same kind of environment for Democrats where the party loses its ability to have any kind of a sifting process to make sure they don't end up with somebody who is so completely outside the mainstream. What, what, which reforms are you thinking of here, just to be specific? Uh, ones that have more caucuses, Moving where caucuses. activists and more open primaries where partisans play less of a role to do away with the role of elected officials and party officials in playing any role at conventions, the superdelegates, if you move in that direction, Democratic Party next time is probably gonna have 17 candidates or more. And if the party has no control over its process, we're not gonna end up with somebody who is a racist, dysfunctional sociopath like Donald Trump, but you could well end up with somebody who is going to have a much harder time competing if you've left the center unoccupied.
1: Although I just want to add that that the if you look at what Bernie Sanders did right, the Democratic Party also needs to learn from that, which is that he mobilized, as Obama did, uh, in a different circumstance, an awful lot of new young energy in the Democratic Party. And the center and left— have to understand that you can't win without the left if you are progressive and you can't win without the center. And we are very firm in the book that you need – a kind of unifying coalition politics because if the democratic party just breaks down into a big fight between we'll call them clinton democrats and bernie democrats they're going to eat themselves alive and that is not a solution uh, to this problem we, you got to respect a part of what bernie sanders did because it was important even as there's a need to have some arguments within the party over what exactly is that right path within the center left ezra i I uh, I think
4: we are looking kind of Pollyannish, as far as you're concerned, that we analyze the politics, we understand it, we understand the importance of structure, and then we say, but we're going to make a difference this time, and this is how we're going to do it. Uh, we're not goo-goo uh politics types. We're not fighting for direct democracy. We don't believe individual voters at the numbers of uh, 150 million are going to invest huge new amounts of time on learning about issues. No, we, we take the system as it is. Public opinion is follow the leader uh, for the most part. Elites Define public opinion. It's uh, politics is about identities, uh, group identities, and all of that is exceedingly important. Organizations are also important in our in our politics, and demonstrations alone come and go. But sometimes organizations get built and and make a big difference, and sometimes. There is an event or a series of developments that that so distress and embarrass ordinary people to get involved. so suddenly a uh, two more million of those vote once a year every two years or four years become activists. We've met a lot of them in the course of this and. Built into some real live political organization that begins to contest some of what has developed on, on the right. So it I I don't see this as a great contrast with uh Bartels and Aiken. We we, I do, and I think Norm and E.J. to some extent, although E.J. is more a small D Democrat than perhaps. The other two of us uh, are, but I, I do. I take
1: that as a warm, friendly compliment. <laughs> God I, bless
4: it you. is. <laughs> I know you do. But so we, well, don't, uh, we don't. Tom rom-
2: and Norm are obviously
4: monarchists. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> exactly. We don't romanticize uh, our politics. We're just saying we think you can also read into history, real live uh, changes in our politics. Just like the Republican Party has undergone a dramatic change, and race is at the base of it. So maybe the change it's going to require some real coalitional changes in the parties, new people stepping forward uh, to to try to overcome some of the structural problems. And I think it would be a tragedy to let this opportunity go and just say, eh, uh, there's nothing you can do about it. It's happening. The structure is there. Uh, all we have to do is survive Donald Trump. Now, our message is contain the damage from Trump and the Republicans, hasten his departure, but most importantly, prepare the ground now, starting now, for for changes in our politics in the wake of this
1: experience. Could I say one quick thing, which you can cut out if you want, about this experience of writing? So, this that's, a, book. that's a hell
2: of a way to sell your coming commentary. Oh no! I just
1: can <laughs> see. I, I, maybe I thought that would discourage you from cutting it out. But um, <laughs> the one of the fun things about this book is that. For, for the experience, is Tom, Norm, and I are in very broad agreement. We had very few fundamental arguments as we were putting this book together, but we did have some interesting dialogues. And one of the things, for example, I like in the book a lot, I'm not sure it's a selling point, but it's something that I thought was useful, which is we went back and forth on the whole idea of populism, uh, where I had a kind of more gut sympathy for the idea of populism because I tended to view it more through the American populist experience that kind of fed into the progressive era. Norm and Tom were more skeptical of populism because they worried about authoritarian populism. And where we came together is, A, showing that populism as a concept is really complicated, viewed differently in Europe than it is in the United States, but also viewed differently by different kinds of Americans. B, we agreed that whatever he is Trump is a phony friend of the working class, and see that there is a kind of populism that we need to be afraid of, and that's authoritarian populism. And so we ended up distinguishing between populism with democratic strains that, say, John Judas wrote about uh, in his book, uh, and populism with more authoritarian strains that sort of define the people in an exclusionary way, uh, and that would be uh, people like um, Jan... Um, uh, there's a, a book called "What Is Mueller?" Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, about, about Mueller's book about yeah. populism, which defines it that way. And we think it's very important to have a real understanding of what populism is. But that all grew out of this dialogue that we had with each other. I want to talk
2: a little bit about the media. Um, you you all talk in the book about the ways uh the media has changed, about the ways the media is fractured, about the rise of opinion media. You have a very nice line. That, that I want to focus in on, where you say opinion journalism cannot be called journalism if it is not based in fact. So, so EJ, you like me, you've worked uh, you worked on the news side of newspapers. Um, you've worked on, uh, I guess, I technically didn't work on the opinion side, but obviously, the work I've done has had more opinion. But you're an op-ed columnist at the Washington Post. One of my conclusions from having been in, in, in more mainstream segments of the media was that we had created artificial divisions in our, our, our papers and our approaches. That made it very hard to tell the truth if you were writing the news and very easy to lie if you were writing opinion. That The standards for opinion writing were very low. That's beautifully put. Thank you. <laughs> and the, the standards for opinion for, for, for news writing were very strange. And this is one of the things where I, I think we've run into a bit of a problem where – I think that it is, for news writers, it is very hard to just say this is going badly or this policy the experts say is a bad policy. On the other hand, for opinion writers, you can kind of say any old thing and there's this view that, well, it's just your opinion. You can say, there's you know, global warming isn't real for reasons that have been completely debunked and it's just your opinion. And you're allowed to publish that, in fact, at the Washington Post op-ed page. And... I that feels to me as we sort of move into this new, more fractured media to be a real problem. We don't have any kind of standards that let us say anything about opinion journalism that is productive. And so sort of everything gets lumped into the same category, no matter whether it's holding itself to, to sort of any kind of journalistic
1: uh, approach or not. Uh, I'm glad you quoted that line because I wrote it prompted by Tom, which is where the fun of a uh, a of, uh, Collaboration I know, comes. you guys all like each other. It was a fun time writing this book. <laughs> why, why not? I get um, it. Maybe, maybe we could get more sales if we talked about the fierce arguments we had all the time. I think that we have to think of truth as the fundamental standard of journalism, whether it's opinion journalism or um, a non-opinion journalism, what we think of as old-fashioned journalism. That means, just as you say, that um, our friends who are not opinion writers in journalism cannot pretend that there are two sides to factual questions when there's only one side. And I think you've seen some movement on that actually agree in that. journalism, particularly, for example, on climate change. And I think under Trump, there was this big debate at the beginning should you call a lie a lie? And now there is far more willingness when something uh, is almost certainly an intentional lie. People are calling it a lie. This is a good thing. I think that people are on the health care bill. I think one of the reasons opinion has changed is because daily journalists have been willing to say, this is exactly what this bill does. And if the other side says, no, it doesn't do that, but it is demonstrably the case that that is false, people are now reporting it. But on the opinion side, I think we who are on the opinion side need to wage a real war on behalf of factually based opinion. I don't mind if somebody thinks I am completely out to lunch in what I think. What bothers me is if I ever make a mistake, I do not want to have something in a column That is a phony fact, which will send all your folks out there searching for any mistake I've ever made. But, you know, an honest mistake, you correct, but you shouldn't base opinion on falsehood. And that's what, in the opinion world, we have to fight for. So in a funny way, journalism is journalism. It's about truth and fact and that's the standard you got to hold to on either side of this line, opinion, non-opinion.
3: But you know, this is one of these areas we, we write about a fair amount, too, about the asymmetry involved here between the tribal media on the right and the mainstream media. That even where you see errors and problems in the mainstream media, and there are plenty of them, this sense of shame at reporting something that's wrong, the desire to move it back in a different direction, the sense that you have to report all sides, or at least both sides, some of which tilts very badly in the wrong direction, contrasts with a right-wing media that deliberately lies and puts out information that is, in effect, propaganda, but it has a substantial audience that comes to believe things that are absolutely not true. And that is a an enormous challenge that we have. I think have. a
2: very interesting example, this is Tucker Carlson. So Tucker Carlson, I don't remember when this was, but it's CPAC maybe eight years ago or something like that. He gets up and he gives a speech at this big conservative conference and he says, look, like— We have our problems with mainstream media, but the truth is we badly need the New York Times. We badly need institutions on the right that are of that quality, that can do that kind of reporting. We have, you know, got ourselves in our own ideological echo chamber. We believe things that aren't true. And, And this is covered very positively. I mean, it's a positive sentiment. He starts in the aftermath of this, his website called The Daily Caller. I have a lot of issues with The Daily Caller, uh, but whatever it is, it is not trying to be The New York Times. Um, And Carlson himself spins off to become a kind of Trump-affiliated... Weird quasi-populist Fox News host, who is definitely not trying to challenge the preconceptions of his conservative audience, who is definitely not building something based on high-quality reporting, who is mainly just trying to bring on people he thinks he can embarrass on a show, you know, and and make um and make his audience, which includes Donald Trump, feel good about themselves. Carlson, he's a talented journalist, he's a capable guy. If you read his stuff from back in the days, extremely capable long-form writer um, and, and, and strong reporter. And he clearly believed there was a problem and clearly wanted to solve it. And I don't know if it's him or it's the structural world around him or it's what the Daily... I mean, the Daily car gets a lot of its traffic from just putting up bikini um, photo uh, galleries now, right? It's a very, very weird institution. The failure of Carlson in, all, in this, to me, is always been very interesting because here's somebody with the resources and probably the capability to do better and has ended up really doing worse, has really just become part of the thing that he once condemned. And it just seems like a shame. Um, and and it, it strikes me as, they're, as suggesting that something is quite rotten in that market. And I mean, then you have, you know, going much further, I mean, things like The Daily Call are great compared to Breitbart, which just doesn't operate, as far as I can tell, based on any standards of journalism at all. I mean, it is self-consciously, internally, a political, a weaponized um, media operation, right? It is like the old kind of partisan newspaper. So there feels to me to be something that in—there was a fight a couple of years ago in conservative journalism that— seemed to me to be based on a lot of people wanting to make it better and instead it, it in many ways has gotten worse.
4: On the positive side, we had the American interest uh Yuval Levin He's and, excellent, yeah. Uh, He's been on the, this podcast the national, interest. There. Huh? Pardon? Pardon? The national interest there the national interest. Yes, yes. Uh, excuse me. Uh that was very encouraging and then but there's the Claremont Review which is just uh often never never land there is an asymmetry, and it's a real problem, but I wanted to put the question to you, since all of us have written, Norman. I, uh, perhaps in particular, about how encouraged we were by the development of thinking about explanatory journalism, and and it, it's really something you started. and. And it's spread, but my question is, uh, what's your assessment at this stage? Has it scaled up? Is it influencing uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post and and other news organizations? Do you feel uh, your influence is greatest through your own direct contact with audiences or have— do you see any reason for being encouraged by? Because I see that as the the most encouraging development in in the media. Oh well, thank you.
2: Um, I you know I won't give myself all. We we did not invent all explanatory journalism, but but we we do a thing here that I think is specific, and I do think we've had a big influence on the media. I mean, the New York Times has at this point hired a way – Six, seven Voxers, which is a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, and it breaks my heart a bit each time. But I mean, they've you know pretty self consciously started up parts of the the times that are, are built on Vox. They actually in the climate change space, they advertised for an explanatory reporter and hired Brad Plumer, who's one of yeah. the the founding members of Vox and is right. an incredibly incredibly excellent climate and energy reporter. Uh, so I, I do think there's been um, – I think in the media has both responded to the push for more explanatory journalism and also previously to that when I was at Wonkblog. I think there are a lot of things now that are are built to do policy reporting, the upshot at, at The New York Times, um, the agenda at Politico. Uh, you know, you can – Wonkblog, of course, is still, is still healthy at The Washington Post. So I think there's a lot more – of that, look. I think the the media, the mainstream media, is actually in an incredibly great place uh, in terms of the work it is currently doing. You all have a lot of criticisms of the way it does campaign reporting, and and I agree with most of those criticisms. But in terms of, go- in terms of how it covers governance, the Washington Post and the New York Times. I mean, it's possible they've never been better. Uh, you know, obviously they have. The Post has the wood, has the Watergate period, but they are operating an incredibly incredibly high level. I think the conservative world really needs some better media institutions. I mean, this to me is uh, is a real hope. And at different times, I've been encouraged and have thought something that is rising at that moment is going to be it. Look, I, I love Yuval Levin in The National Interest, but that's a policy journal, right? Yeah. It's a quarterly policy journal. It's not trying to play that function. I think that a lot of criticisms of the mainstream media are correct. And I definitely think the mainstream media has a heavy cosmopolitan bias, which I think is different than a liberal bias. I don't think yes, if I you go to the a, New York Times— It's a
1: Times, class bias.
2: Yeah. It's a class bias. I don't think if you go to the New York Times, what you find is— Uh, A lot of reporters with very heavy pro-redistribution opinions or single-payer opinions. But in terms of believing that immigration is a good thing, in terms of believing that gay marriage should be um, uh, the law of the land, in terms of believing that pluralism uh, and tolerance are are important, I think one reason Trump got a very different reaction from the media is that it's not that he's conservative. Sometimes he isn't. It's that he's anti-cosmopolitan. So I think it'd be really valuable to have really high quality journalistic institutions that did not share that set of biases. but I think the conservative media has quite consciously walled itself off um, not just from the mainstream media but in some ways from the from a lot of the values that uh, animate the mainstream media. I'll say, I'll say one well, I'll say one more thing before. Because now Tom is giving me the floor, and I don't want to give it back. Um, you know, look like Vox is a it's a your pla-
3: microphone, and you paid for it. Right, and I paid for it. Um,
2: Vox is a place where we we do take positions. My reporters are allowed to come down on the side of an issue, and I think certainly in terms of where you know uh, a lot of the opinions end up, we end up at this moment in American politics on the center left. Although, if I would like to have a Republican administration, that it didn't feel like the only way to cover it was was often hostile. But we try very hard to um, we are animated and we come from and go to this, these places that you know exist within this long um, journalistic tradition. And so we're we're we are we are part of that stream. And I think one problem for the conservative media, which has often felt itself in opposition opposition to the mainstream media, is it it has because of that thrown out a lot of the standards of the mainstream media, which could apply to journalism coming from a conservative
3: point of view, as well as any other kind of journalism. So let me just talk for a minute about business models. You know, I'm really encouraged that you found a business model that works. The Washington Post is making money now. The Post and the Times are on the upswing. Other newspapers are still struggling to find a business model. I look at Tucker Carlson, and to me, it's all business model. It's cynical. But, you know, Carlson used to have a show on Fox and then got bumped off. Now he's showcased. He's making a ton of money. The Daily Caller, the more outrageous it gets, the more uh, eyeballs it gets. You look at Dinesh D'Souza. You know, one of the things we're doing now- Dinesh D'Souza is like the most depressing thing. (laughs) And Yes, we agree on that. (laughs) You know, one of the things you do when you have a book out is you regularly look at Amazon to see where you are. And we've done very well. But I've noticed that Dinesh D'Souza's book just keeps doing well. It is a pack of gross lies. What is this new book? Which is everything, you know, it's basically about how liberals caused Hitler um, and it is filled with, it's Wait, really? Uh, honest to God, I'm not exaggerating. And it's, you know, it hovers up there on the New York times bestseller you think he's list. He's just fucking with us. Yeah. He's like, you know what?
2: I'm going to, you know, I uh, yes. bet I can <laughs> like, that feels like a dare.
3: That Having book. said that a guy who was, you know, fired from being president of a college for his sexual actions, who went to jail for a brief period of time for violating campaign finance laws is making a ton of money and he does these movies that are absolute distortions. One of the real problems we have is that on the right, the more outrageous you get, this is the Ann Coulter principle, the better you can do and you become a celebrity. And that is a challenge because if business models work that way and if they encourage the worst kind of behavior and maybe even incitement to riot at times, and Rush Limbaugh comes very close to that, we've got a problem and I don't know how to solve it.
1: You know, one of the things we talk about in the book is this fascinating uh, joint MIT-Harvard study, a couple of centers up there, uh, which looked at, uh, you know, millions of news stories and who read what. And their bottom line was that people on the liberal side, yes, they did consume some liberal media or progressive media, but they also... Uh, Consumed a significant amount, a great deal of mainstream media. Whereas on the conservative side, they found that there were a whole lot of conservatives who only consumed conservative media. That's point one. Point two, which actually should distress those of us who are in the mainstream media. Is some of the tropes developed by the far right media, as we are learning, sometimes encouraged by the Russians or aided by the Russians, those tropes ended up somehow working their way into the mainstream media. So you've got a double problem here which is that there is – and this isn't true of all conservatives. There are plenty of conservatives we know who read The New York Times or The Washington Post. But there is a very significant body of opinion on the right and a real market uh, for pure uh, conservative opinion and at times just pure uh, propaganda. And I don't know uh, any way to remedy that over the long run except to hope – Uh, that young people who tend to be more progressive on the whole than older people and are sort of generally somewhat sophisticated about their uh, consumption habits uh, might kind of break this trend. I mean, you really need a new generation of conservatives to say, hold on, this kind of politics is completely losing our generation. Uh, And I don't know if I think uh, there's the potential of that out there, but I don't know if it's going to happen.
3: You know, EJ is a little more optimistic than I am about the soul searching going on among mainstream journalists in the aftermath of the campaign. But one area that- As uh, Margaret Thatcher said,
1: he would, wouldn't he? Yes, (laughs) that's
3: right. One area that fits in what he just said. So, you know, WikiLeaks publishes all this stuff, including uh, personal emails uh, from John Podesta, a lot of stuff that was nothing but gossip. And the mainstream media jumped all over it and, you know, published a lot of stuff that was just inappropriate to publish, right? But it was, oh boy, we've got gossip here. We can do it without even thinking about it. That was the Russians manipulating our election process and having some useful tools here. I'd like to see more people in the, especially editors, who might say, you know, now that we've seen this happen, maybe we should be planning ahead for the next time so we don't make the same mistake. So it's funny. I think I about this it. a
2: lot. We cover these. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I reflect on is we knew where they were coming from. I mean, the whole we all did. Um, we knew at the New York Times. We knew at the Washington Post. We knew at Vox. We everybody knew where this was coming from. There was a lot of writing about it and reporting on it at the time. And there are I, I try to think of how of would we have done something different because I think there are there are interesting questions here. One is that some of it was. Not important. Some of it was gossip, and some of it wasn't, right? I mean, some of it was John Podesta's risotto recipe, and then some of it was actually interesting insights into the policymaking process, into who was doing what. It would have been newsworthy. And If it had only been the risotto recipe, it might have helped Clinton right. in the campaign. It would have, if it had been leaked to us in another way, it would have been newsworthy in a in a in a, in a normal way. Um, Then the next thing is that the media is highly competitive. That's part of what the internet has done. And so when all of your competitors are covering this stuff, then for you to not cover it, what it really looks like is biased, right? What it really looks like is you're not covering the stuff that hurts Hillary Clinton because you want to help out Hillary Clinton. Um, and so that's also like a reputational risk to you to, to as an organization. What you almost need is for there to be some kind of cross-media agreement, which I believe would actually be illegal. But from um,
3: we're seeing in France and Germany. But
2: you could have standards that, that are around these things. I just, I don't know how to think about them because a final thing I'll say is that the media does subsist for to a very large degree on, on heavy amounts of leaking, right? We are, we're constantly getting things that people don't want us to have. I agree that, Having come as part of another country's organized operations against us is very, very, very different and very scary um, and and should be thought of probably another way. But particularly in a case where it's not even 100 percent clear where it's coming from and WikiLeaks was just enough plausible deniability, it becomes a little bit hard to say why this leak and not that leak. Right. If you're Donald Trump, you're conservative listening to this. Well, okay, so you've got an organized campaign of leaking from Russia. That's bad. But isn't it also bad to have an organized campaign of leaking coming from within America's national security apparatus, attempting to discredit or undermine or otherwise embarrass the president of the
1: United States? And nobody in the media is doing anything but patting themselves on the back over that. We we have had this discussion, and I have made very much the same kind of point you did, which is- You're a perceptive political thinker, I've always always thought. I am formed by all the years I spent in journalism. I mean, the problem- problem with the WikiLeaks, the challenge it posed, is that there was some genuinely newsworthy information there that the news media are going to have a, a lot of trouble just saying, well, we're not going to report this. I think there are two things we might learn from this. I think what we probably failed, well, I think what we did fail to do was to underscore more than we did that there was this Russian disinformation Uh, campaign going on and that it was designed to hurt Hillary Clinton and that the stories themselves, we might have emphasized this more uh, in the course of the stories. I mean, the whole business at the beginning of the Democratic Convention about um, uh, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and all of that, it really was aimed at the Democratic Convention, wherever all that information came from. Um, and I also think that we do need to think about, as uh, the Europeans are, and as I think American journalists are, um, how can you uh, at least fight the disinformation aspects of these? Uh, campaigns but you know the russians aren't stupid they know that american journalists like journalists anywhere are going to jump at new information i, I would say
2: though but I, I think this is i often think this fake news and even a little bit the russian disinformation stuff this is almost the easy question this is the one everybody agrees I agree. fake news I, is, no that's uh, totally uh, right it's the real the, news the harder the is, harder question is for instance the way the media covered hillary clinton's emails right. which yes was not coming, for the most part, from Russia. It's actually always hard because there were so many different email issues. <laughs> but I, I mean here, um, you know, Hillary Clinton's server emails, a private state government server. You know, there's that famous Gallup word cloud of what did what were voters yeah. hearing about Hillary Clinton and just email is the biggest word. Right. And that's something where we were doing legitimate reporting, where the news, again, for the most part, was coming from legitimate sources, where the media felt pretty good about what it was doing. And it was so outsized. And none of it was false. It was just so out of magnitude. I always think about that, and I believe it was an NBC News forum. Um, I think you all read about it in the book, actually, where it was a national security forum. I think she got some, like, seven questions, and four or five were on the emails. And that's the thing where I think the media is having a a grand old time complaining about fake news because also it makes us look good, right, to be talking about fake news like, well, we're the real news. But I think much more damaging in in the election was what Jonathan Shade talked about as the abnormalization of Hillary Clinton, the usage of the emails and so forth to make her seem like some kind of completely – uh, cynical and possibly criminal candidate and there's normally a, but wanna- there's
3: there's a larger question here too that I think has not yet been addressed some of that information was not true it was leaked for example by the Benghazi committee and the New York Times became a channel for stuff that was distorted and then later on the democrats on the committee Pointed out that it had been distorted information. We have on the other side of this a huge front page story in the New York Times right before the election. FBI says the Russian stuff doesn't mean anything at all. And what I see here is the reliance on anonymous sources, which is a mainstay of uh, uh, of the media. When they give you distorted or fake information, there are no consequences. I have yet to see a journalist who outs a source who lied to them in a way that embarrassed them, but also created a different kind of climate. And it seems to me we need a whole new set of standards about where this information is coming from and what rules are. And if somebody gives you information and it is deliberately distorted or a lie, they should be held accountable.
1: I think there are journalists who actually uh, have the principle that if somebody has lied to me, They've lost their confidentiality. I've seen journalists do that. But to your point, Ezra, the fundamental imbalance and the really tough question is the flaws of Hillary were made willy-nilly equivalent to the flaws of Donald Trump. And to me, that is a distortion. And I don't think it's a partisan statement to say that, that Hillary had the normal problems of a normal politician who made some real mistakes along the way, Trump had was entirely different. And again, I said early on that many of the mistakes in this campaign came from the idea that Trump will never be elected. The press really did investigate Trump in a serious way later on in the campaign. But Hillary had this situation where for two, three, four years about the election, there was this narrow focus on a handful of issues They got repeated over and over again. And then you had this cascade of information about Trump where we write in the book that Trump is the first politician in history to fend off one scandal story with another. It was all just descending And you ended up, I think, creating a distorted picture of the choice. As soon as you say that, somebody's going to say, well, that's a partisan view. I don't think it's a partisan view at all, but it's something that we have to explore as journalists about what real balance is and what real fairness is.
4: This closes uh, a circle when we talked about negative partisanship and how this drives uh, our elections so much. There's now a powerful incentive for one political party, uh, for both parties, but Republicans have have uh, have done it much more, is to is to somehow demonize uh, the opponent, to shape the terms on which the press covers the opponent, and so how does how does the press deal with that when they know what's going on? I mean, the operations exist in both parties. It's just the, the artillery uh, uh, has, uh, has strengthened and improved, and that's a big challenge for the media. Well, the media has many big challenges. <laughs>
2: um, I think that's a good place to to close here. When when we end the podcast, usually we ask I ask my guests to, to recommend three books. But given that there are three of you, I'm gonna ask you each to recommend one book that, that has you've read that has influenced you over the years that you would recommend people read, beginning
1: with you, EJ. Um, one of the books that had the greatest impact on me, and it's an old book. Um, is William Luchtenberg's book, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal. I always plug that book uh, because it really had a major impact on my politics. And it's a, it's still one of the best short histories of the New Deal. If I can do a second. The other book that really changed my way of looking at the world is Martin Luther King's collection of sermons called Strength to Love. Uh, and I love all my friends who are on the uh, religious right to read that book And let's have a dialogue on what religious commitment, and in this case, Christian commitment, actually means.
3: So uh, there's a book I read just in the last uh, year and a half that really had an impact on me. It was by a historian named Fergus Bordewick, and it was about the first Congress. And it was about how a group of people who were not giants—in fact, most of them were average or below-average people—came together and had this incredible, productive experience. It was the Bill of Rights, among other things— Because they saw that they had a weight of responsibility to the country. If they failed, this whole experiment might fail. And as I read that, you just, you know, a couple of things struck me. One was the discussion of the Second Amendment, which was pretty cursory generally, except that they had this deep extended discussion of uh, a a well-organized militia because they were disbanding the army and this was all about creating an alternative so there wouldn't be anarchy. So when the Supreme Court and the originalists, and I use that in quotes, uh, said, oh, this had nothing to do with a militia. In fact, they completely ignored that clause. They were distorting the reality enormously. But it was also about a group of people who did put party, uh, country ahead of party. And when we look at that standard now and see how many are failing, it just really stood out for me.
4: It's very hard for me to pick a particular book, uh, but when uh, when the opportunity arose uh, uh, through uh, through foreign policy, I I really did the 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 Kahneman Tversky uh, thinking fast and thinking slow, and it uh, uh, the whole movement of behavioral economics has led me to think differently about the social sciences more generally uh, and I see the Aiken Bartels book as a sort of contemporary manifestation of uh, of, of that work uh, Democracy for Realists
2: Tom Mann Norm Ornstein E.G. Dion thank you very much Joy to be with you thank you to, to E.J. to Tom and to Norm they, they were great I hope you all enjoyed this uh, you should check out their book One Nation After Trump thank you to my producer Jillian Weinberger my engineer Peter Leonard The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we'll be back next week.